I want people to give themselves permission to be creative. Like I want people to stop thinking about will it sell? Stop thinking about like anything except your imagination. Like let yourself imagine it. Don't be a lot of I find that like so I I also sometimes teach writing one on one and a lot of times I get this feedback like well that's not how it happened you know and they're writing a fiction story and they're like well that's not how it's not what happened I'm like no you imagine what happened and what happened is what you write down that's what happens and then it has to feel true it doesn't have to actually have happened in the real world Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project I'm Marina Aris and I'm Diane Fenner, and we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Milda DeVoe is the founder and executive director of Pen Parentis, an organization that supports parent writers. She is also the author of the forthcoming literary novel titled The Boy Who Loved Trees. And she holds an MFA from Columbia. We're really, really excited to have you here with us today, Milda. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to be here. We're glad to have you. Okay. So the reason we wanted to uh, have you on the show is because aside from talking to people who are just writing, we have an interest in people who are also doing something to help writers. And Diane and I are both fans of what you do. Um, uh, I love the literary salons and... They really They're are amazing. amazing. I was saying to Marina that I didn't want the secret to get out because I don't want it to be ruined. It's such a gem to walk into that literary salon and listen to the highest quality authors just across two feet from you. Yes. And then there's the conversation amongst yourselves and the hors d'oeuvres, and it's just such a gift. I'm so glad you made it up and made it come true. It's really, really special. We're very lucky. Um, we're especially lucky that we have such a strong partnership with On Wall Street because their space is so glamorous. I mean, I think of it, I wish it were, like, you know, Dorothy Parker and the Algonquin, like how they got <laughs> yeah. melded together in this kind of literary. So I, I would love it if, you know, people thought of the On as a fancy place. In the it is. That we it's beautiful. And that's Andaz, A-N-D-A-Z, in uh, Wall Street. Street. Right. They also have one, I think, across from the library, ironically. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, that's right. But but ours is is all the way downtown on Wall and Water, and their space is just this high-ceiling, vaulted, golden, shimmering, amazing, I don't know, temple to literature. It's so good. And, and it's also a temple to money, <laughs> as we, as we, as you noted in the last literary salon. Yes. I, you missed that, Diane. That was one that Diane didn't mean to miss, but she did. And I there, know, the one there was music. something gave, you did not realize. Yeah, and I gave the, so when Milton I pointed out when we first started at Andaz Wall Street, it was brand new, and they had just renovated the entire space. So I got to go on a tour with. Um, not with the designer, but with the person who had, like, I guess, approved the designs. Yeah. And they were showing me all the detail work. And one of the secrets of Andaz is that uh, a lot of their, what are they, like, decorative um, patterns are directly taken from money. Because when Andaz Wall Street opened, it was still a financial neighborhood. Now it's so residential here. Everywhere you go, there's strollers. Everywhere you go, there's a new restaurant opening, a new service, a new daycare center. There's so many parents. I, I really hope that a lot of parents will, will 
start coming. Well, without their kids. <laughs> without their kids. <laughs> Where are we going to put the kids? We're here for the writers. Oh, yeah. They, you know, the parenting side is on you. Actually, actually, <laughs> while we're on that subject, tell us the tagline because I love the tagline for Pen Parentis. Oh, right. Right. Parenting done, comma, right. All right, right. Um, How did you get the idea? And and did you just get struck by a vision one day and you said, I'm going to make this literary salon a place where parents can write and and it just then sprung from your forehead full grown? I would like to say that, but that is not true. (laughs) Um, But but it's a really pretty image. (laughs) Um, Actually, I was, I had a, a colleague from Columbia, actually, and she and I, we're both struggling to write novels while we were raising children. So I had two children at the time. She had one. They were very little. And we would meet maybe once a month or, or once a, a week and whenever we could, basically. And we would just freak out about, like, how do people do this? How do people write books? I know people write books when they have kids, but how do they? Where did they find the money? Where do they find the time? Where do they find the energy? How do they do that? How do they not get obsessed with like the little toe is so cute? Like how, how do you focus on your own creative? And how do you not just immediately start a mommy blog and just spend all your time writing about your children? So we we were really, um, we spent a lot of time talking about this. And finally, I had gone to a grant meeting for a neighbor who is an artist and the Lower Manhattan uh, Cultural Council, LMCC, was uh, they had had an influx of grant money right after 9-11. And so they wanted to start to sort of reboot the arts downtown. And of course, as grants do, they don't show up for many, many years. Right, right. So 2009, uh, 2008 was when they suddenly had this like influx of extra arts money from the government. And they said, anybody who has an idea for an arts project, now's the time to start it. Uh-huh. And so we were we thought... How amazing would it be to have like a full day symposium where just all the authors of New York and the area, anybody could just come and do panels and do, we'll just figure it all out in one weekend. We'll have all the answers. (laughs) And so we applied with this great idea. And in fact, we were turned down because it was too educational. It was an arts grant. And so... You know, and in my feedback session and LMCC, I have to say, if you're ever looking for a grant, they are an amazing place to start looking at bigger funding because they are so helpful in every step of the process. But especially when you get turned down, you can still call them and be like, why? What happened? It's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. And and they're so kind. Um, and I, I sat there with the, with the grants person and, you know, she told me, well, it, it if it had been more arts, like performing or or somehow interacting with the audience. And I said, so like a reading series? Because, of course, when I was at Columbia, everybody was doing reading series. Like every single yeah. bar had a reading series up by Columbia, all of them. They all had poetry series or reading series. This is what students do. They go, they read their work yeah. in a bar. You come out sticky, you know? <laughs> and, and, and hopefully I, a little drunk. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I don't remember anything that you heard. It was so great. But um, you just loved it. But I thought, okay, I can do a reading series. Like I could totally do that. And our, my friend Arlena, who I used to, you know, have lunch with was like, yeah, we could totally do this. Let's do this, do a reading series. So we started it at the time we called it, it was a really convoluted name. It was sort of pre-websites. It was like the Pen Parentis After Work Reading Series or something like that. Wow. And it was just this really, really long idea. 
And, uh, but it, we just thought it would be so great to do something downtown that people could come to after work. Cause at the time, again, it was still a work area right? where I happened to live. But, um, but we thought, you know, there's nothing down here. There's just no literary events. The Borders bookstore was still open then. And they became our partners and they would, they were so great. They would have bookmarks in their books that I would like pen parentas would print these bookmarks and then they would put them in their books to, to sort of promote that particular author that was going to read that night. Oh, wow. So it was really cool. We had a lot of interactive stuff going with them. They were really good. And um, yeah, right around the time they were closing, we were actually talking about doing a table of like pen parentas authors, but then they closed. So, oh, well. Okay. <laughs> oh, some other we'll, books we'll are figure will take out. up this great idea. We'll anyway, but the, um, so the, now I'm all excited about that idea. Like, oh, now I need to go find a bookstore. I, I like that idea. I like it. I mean, we just had a, a win with McNally Jackson in Williamsburg. Oh. They just said yes to us to hosting the Brooklyn Writers Project Writing Group every week. Oh, so that's, that's like a huge win. And we're like loving it. I mean, when a bookstore gets that's involved. So One of those is opening by us. Oh, really? I can't wait into this. Yeah, the seaport. They're just so beautiful. As soon as the seaport opens. Yeah. I think it opens probably this summer. I know yeah. the seaport opens this summer. Right. So I don't know when their bookstore opens this summer. Because every store is, I mean, it has its, every independent store has its own culture like and it, their own thing. And I love that. And, and so, we're super so residential. Them, so. so maybe people will want to like buy yeah. books from yeah. kids. There's something to go on. Anyway, so continue. I, I, I don't mean to oh, that's okay. interrupt. Um, but. So what do we do? So we started this reading series and uh, it was uh, people who, would cry. Like people who who, who was reading and, and you were so reading or who I did you get to read? Arlena and I. So Arlena Tabensky is my friend, and she and I would would host it together. She would find the readers. So she okay. always seemed to know who was going to have a baby and who was. She was. She's like the People magazine of writers. She knows everybody. So cool. She knows everybody, and she knows what they're all doing. Okay. So. Um, so she would she would go and find all the writers and bring them. And I found space in a actually a different hotel. We started in a different hotel, but I walked into it and it had an upstairs library. It was a Todd English restaurant. It was very swanky. And I just literally walked up to the management and said, I have a reading series that I would like to host here. What's your quiet night? And they were like, oh, what? <laughs> and they were like Tuesdays, and we were like, okay, we'll do it then. And I don't even know if they had time to sort of understand yeah. what was going on. But um, <laughs> so much for asking permission. Yeah, I just, I, it was too perfect. I had to. It was an upstairs library bar. Come on, so they cool. needed a literary salon. Yeah, and um, and then we actually went over to the wall to to Anda's Wall Street. Um, when that restaurant got it got changed hands like fifty times. I can't even tell you, like. Restaurants in hotels tend to change a lot. And that particular restaurant had gone under and been replaced. And right before one of our big season openers, I called them just to make sure that everything was still good because we're off for summer. So I don't see the hotel for three months usually between events. (laughs) I called them and they said, oh, and then there was like a really weird Oh, And I was like, what? And they're like, we need you to talk to the new owner of the restaurant. And it was so strange. And I'm like, okay, but I mean, we're still on, right? Two weeks from now, like this. Two weeks. Two weeks. Oh, no, I know where this is going. And I called the owner and he said, nope. He said, we're changed. We have ripped out all the books. We have ripped out the entire library bar. It is a wine bar now. 
Interesting. And they did. Like, I, it was under construction and nobody told me. Uh-huh. Nobody said, and I'm like, it's in the New Yorker. Like, <gasps> the New Yorker has this listed in the New Yorker. <laughs> what are you doing? And so I just walked over to the wall. I literally walked over to Anda's and I said, look, you guys, you know, your neighborhood people, you know, book, you know, the neighborhood is very residential. You know, you're new. And the, the general manager of that hotel, I had met through an organization called LOMA, which is Lower Manhattan Marketing Association. And we're sort of like, a, they're very sort of tourism friendly. And mm-hmm. they just talk a lot about how to raise the visibility of Lower Manhattan. And so I had met him at, this, at these meetings. And he had been like fall. It was hilarious because he used to every meeting, he'd be like, are you ready to leave? Are you ready to come over to us yet? Are you ready? Oh, to come really? To us he yet? would go. Oh, and he always really, because the Andas does salons, like all the Andas hotels have uh-huh. some kind of local flavor right. thing. Like in LA, I think they have tattoo, a tattoo artist oh, that like lives in their like I Hollywood building. Mm-hmm. So they needed a salon. I had a salon. I walked in the door. I said, hi, I have a salon for you. And they had just changed general managers. But the second general manager also needed a salon. So they were like, yeah, okay, done. And we were just <laughs> Talk in. about timing. And it was so great. And and this particular GM is so good to us. I mean, yeah. he's like... What, what year so was much. that, by the way? Just to give us some frame of reference. I when did you start? And when did you... 11 we moved to them? Because I, I think it was September 11th, 2011. Okay. I feel like it was like a big, crazy number that made us like you know, that we had a big event that day mm. and, uh, yeah. And so before so, you got to Andaz, you had how many years before, or uh, how much time? We started, the first salon was in January of 2009. So we're okay. coming up on our 10 year anniversary of salons. Wow. So we're very excited. Yay. That's fantastic. Okay. That's <laughs> a, a great story. Decade of salons. Yeah. It's wonderful. And, and what about your friend? Have I met your friend, Marlena? Yeah, Arlena. Maybe she's, Arlena. Yeah, she's on, the, she's on our board. And I, I will she meet her lives in, she, she's, she lives kind of far. So she does, she's, uh, it's hard for her to get to the salon. She moved to New Jersey. Okay. She bought a house in New Jersey. Okay, so. great, great. Yeah. That's You'll so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Keep coming. I will, of course. So what do you want people to know about reasons to come to Pen Parentis at Andaz? So first of all, we are extremely inclusive. You do not have to be a parent. <laughs> or even a writer. You can bring all your friends. But if then all the parent writer, writers are going to be really jealous of the ones that don't have children nagging them. <laughs> no, no, it's really funny. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's especially great for parents who are writers because it is extremely inspiring. The only people that we feature are all writers that already have kids and that are somehow successful. And we define success in a very broad way. Like, you know, you have, you have to have a book. But also it can be... Um, we also can sometimes bring people who don't yet have a book who have, for instance, won maybe the O. Henry Award, or they may have been published in the New Yorker, or uh, you know, just very, there are various reasons that we're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's worth it. And, you know, all of the curators that I've had, and we've had um, three, three curators, they've all had such an eye for talent that the people who come, there's almost like this mystique of luck 
that if you read at Pen Prentice, something amazing will happen to you in the nice. next like six months. <laughs> oh. Because, you know, Jennifer Egan yeah. won the Pulitzer Prize. Right. Austin Ratner won this gigantic Jewish uh, writing award. Um, and we seem to get them right before, like we've got to be part of your marketing now. Well, it's I'm amazing, saying, right? right? Like, come find the pen Prentice mystique. Get the, the gold. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so Arthur Phillips, right before he came on the day. So we had already booked him, right? So on the day he read his, uh, book was on the cover of the New York times book review. Wow. So, fantastic. you know, so obviously they have the talent, you know, but we're able somehow to, to see it before the whole rest of the public gets to. So That's really fantastic. It's really fun. In fact, we have a hashtag. We're so, we're so fancy. <laughs> we have a hashtag read at pen parentis, okay. which, uh, if you, if you look at it on Twitter, it's got like all the success stories of all these bazillions of actually about 300 authors that we've had so far wow. at our salons. It's amazing. It's very cool. And, it must have built up to that. It must have started at some point being a little bit uphill to get people and then gotten easier and easier, or in, am I wrong? Well, in the beginning, so, okay, so surprisingly, well, I don't know if this is surprising, but people, so our core is the fact that in the arts world, artists and writers, I include writers in artists, but all artists who have kids there's like a, a societal sort of looking down on them. Maybe they're not as good artists because they have kids. And I hate that. I, I fiercely am against it. And, and I think that was the real reason why I thought that Pen Friends needed to be an organization and a nonprofit and not just a reading series. Like we could have gone on as a reading series forever. We're very successful as a reading series, but this mission of like br breaking that stereotype of parent writer, that's huge for me. Like just, you know, having the fact that a lot of writers don't list their kids in their bios and they do it because they think it makes them look like more serious artists. That mm. bothers me right. because if you go to like, if you look in business and I can make this a male female thing a little bit, but in business, in the business, when the corporate world, um, a CEO or a, a worker who's a male and has a child will generally get a raise. They're generally seen as somebody who's now going to work harder because they have children to support. Right. right. In the arts world, it's not, it's the opposite for male and female. Like you, people just, you know, they see Ernest, they think of, Oh, Ernest Hemingway was so devoted to his art that he abandoned his children and they all killed themselves. Like that's not cool. That's not okay. That's not how people should look at, you know, I'm also a believer in dividing art from life. Like I'm not a person who stops buying books because somebody is a jerk. You know, I, I will sometimes maybe stop buying and maybe I'll get them from the library, but I won't stop appreciating the art as on its own. Right. Separate right. from the other thing. But I think that the more I think the world wants to integrate the art with life. And I think that the more that happens, the more it's really important that everybody know that, you know, having parents doesn't, I mean, having children doesn't make you less creative. And what do you think that comes from? I mean, because I feel like, I mean, everyone in this room, I mean, the three of us have, have children. Mm -hmm. We all write. <laughs> um, and I think I've struggled more with the idea that I just, like you said in the beginning, energy, mm -hmm. focus, time, time, money, Money. money, because sure. a lot of your money, money is going to pay right. for college someday. Right, right. Yeah. And daycare um, right now. <laughs> um, and it's interesting. And I think, okay, so if I if I 
consider it from my perspective. I think at some point it did feel like in a family, most people are not writers. Okay. You might have one writer and yet you're almost like a black sheep, right? Like as yeah. what does that person do? Mm-hmm. They write. Oh yeah. Right. They write. So is it almost coming from there at the point that because the act of writing requires you put the pen to paper or you put the, the hands to keyboard that it's not such a serious endeavor. Is that what you mean in a way? Or I don't think so. I think that people are very respectful of writers. People worship writers. I mean, if you go to a cocktail party and say you're a writer, people are so interested. Mm-hmm. What do you write? What do you, how do you, you know, where do you, what do you do? Mm-hmm. They're very intrigued. And they, I think that there is, I think it's beautiful to be an artist. And I think artists are very valued in society. Mm-hmm. I think that the idea of a combination of somebody who's a parent and an artist is the thing that is hard for society to grapple with because, I mean, we're used to like the stereotype of a writer is some usually dude up in an attic drinking at four in the morning and smoking cigarettes. Like, if not, you know, I mean, that's, that's, sort of the mystique that's like what people think of well is it something that also runs through other occupations and is one of the tenets of feminism which is that family work is unpaid work uh family work is women's work families are a tier below what is valued they are something that um the feminist movement wants to turn around for sure. I think that the, I, this, the, especially the feminists, especially for women, that is a core issue. No matter what field you're in, it is hard to be a lawyer and a mom. It is hard to be a doctor and a mom. It is always going to be harder, you know, well, hopefully not always. It is yeah. for now right. harder to be a, but you know what, it, then the reason that I did pen parentis as a parent thing and not a mom thing is because I think the stay at home parent is what is the problem. I don't think that it's necessarily gender based. I think uh-huh. it is more gender based because there are certainly many, many more women who do it and who feel that they have to do it because of societal gender, gender norms. But I think that whichever parent or both parents that stay at home with their kids are seen as less serious oh it's just a hobby mm-hmm. and the thing is with writing you don't get paid up front right like right. you especially right. creative writing and that's what we really focus on at pen Prentice is creative writing it is possible to sell nonfiction without finishing it like you write your right. proposal you sell it then you go home and write and then people understand oh right well they're making money yeah. you know yeah. but our society is so money-based so money-based that to have a career in which first you do the work and then you get the payment is, right. you know, right. And, and you're doing the work for nobody. It's not like a carpenter who at least knows that the person wants the beautiful thing that they're going to build at some right. point. It's like, and it's not only societal. It, yeah. I mean, the issue is even in, in marriages, in relationships. I mean, I, true. I, I mean, I've gone through it. I know. So it's, it's interesting. It's wider than just what society sees yeah, or I how think, they view it. I think it's very, Excuse me. I think it's very money uh, obsessed, money obsessed, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you say that somebody is a successful writer? You know, when like in our way, we look at it as, you know, they get good reviews. They are books are in stores. Their books are in stores. Sometimes it's their bestsellers like that. That definitely. Right. But (laughs) I was just I didn't even know where I saw this. I just saw this on the Internet and I thought it was so telling. 
So a bestseller is called a best seller. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. called a best like written book. Yeah, right. you know what I'm saying. It's the best book it's you'll true. ever read. It is a best seller. So, so yes. lots of people buy it yeah. because it's yes. probably well marketed. Um, it's like yeah, like best marketed for... maybe. Yeah, yeah. But it, I just found that like I I literally when I read that I just sat back and was like. Whoa. That's right. Like, whoa. Just big whoa. betrays all the fundamental values yeah. without even realizing the Freudian slip. But it's legacy of capitalism, right? And hopefully uh, it's changing. And when you think about other cultures where there is perhaps more value on refinement and, and the arts without uh, insisting that it be a moneymaker in order to have value, Um, you can see something of a model. At least that's my opinion, because I've traveled a little bit, not as much as I want to, and seen places where people generally, genuinely value concert music and they value a tremendous dancer and they act like it's such a treat. Culture. Yes, and I think that the American... I thought it was interesting that you made that very important nuanced division about it being unvalued work, not really gender-specific discrimination. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. And I do think that what we're coming around to here in this discussion is that the roots have to do with the capitalist. I think it does, because if you say you're a journalist, that is a very different response than I'm a writer, Mm -hmm. even though that's the same thing. Right, that's so true. All journalists are also writers, unless I guess they're video. But but still, it's like, Mm -hmm. come on. And, And... and people are just not not. And I love it that you decided that it was pens parentis because the authors would have children, not because the people who come to the salon right. need to be encouraged. Well, I think that the the stereotype, like in anything where you're trying to break a stereotype, it's the general public that needs educating. Like sure. we know we work hard. Right. Our kids know that we work hard. I mean, our kids are told, like you know, mom has to write. So. That's what's going on now. Mom is doing her job. Sorry. You know? And so it's not us that needs educating. It's everybody. And so when you're presented with, these are all parents. Here are their books. Oh, this one won the Pulitzer Prize. You know? Uh, Michael Chabon just wrote, I hope I said his name right, just wrote. um, About fatherhood. He wrote an article for Atlantic Magazine, which started with him being told by somebody at a party that that you know he really shouldn't it was it was like on his wedding day or before his wedding and somebody told him some random fancy right, writer right, told him right. like you should never have children because it'll ruin your career oh, i am oh, super oh, paraphrasing this article. every book you, but every child is a book that's every, not been written that's it oh. every child is a book that you've lost oh. and so his article is so brilliant because he just basically says okay so i've written 14 books wow, I, maybe I could have written 18. You know? <laughs> and it's so like any parent writer yeah. is going to just like, I mean, you just did burst out laughing yeah. because he is putting down this yeah. guy. Like yeah. he won the Pulitzer Prize and wrote 14 novels. What have you done this? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and he, I and mean, he's definitely slowed down. I mean, like if we had to acknowledge the challenges, there are sure, challenges. There, I mean, I definitely slowed down. I used to write certainly more. But, but, you know, it's, I think it is very unfair to blame that on having children mm-hmm. because otherwise we also have to blame aging parents and mm-hmm. needing to pay rent and all the millions of things walking the dog sure. that like take the time sure. Netflix 
Right. You could probably blame yeah. Netflix for a real lot Absolutely. of lost novels. If we're <laughs> honest, everybody has children, whether they like it or not. They have something, like you're saying, right. that takes the attention. But the thing is, is that having children is just, it's just part of some people's lives. Like, it's right. not, it's not everybody's choice, but the people that have kids, like, it's just biology. It's like part of your life. You are there doing this. This is what you've chosen and this is, or what has been given to you, whichever way you do it. This is your life. Go do it. It is not a reason to quit your creative career. Absolutely. Like it is not a reason to stop being creative. And Absolutely. it just really bothers me. I think you're right. I'm glad you're still so passionate after almost 10 years. That's really? wonderful. I've had children for 15 That's... years. I've been passionate for <laughs> no. But I But I think it. to I take it. it one step further, having children is a part of your life that is considered unpaid labor or is not recognized as having um, work that should be financially valued. And that's where the difference lies, because if you are collecting model cars, you're going to have a trade-off in, in, you know, what you can afford or other things that are recognized to have value. Right. So, so one of the things that when we, very early on, one of the things that we uh, used to say, or maybe we still say it sometimes, but so everybody acknowledges that artistic careers are 24 seven. We know this. It is a 24 seven thing to write a novel. You are constantly thinking about it. You're constantly doing things. Well, guess what? Parenting is also 24 seven. That's true. And yeah. so now you happen to have two 24 seven careers. But whatever, you just deal, you do, you have two 24-7 careers. You're going to give and take. Sometimes you're going to lose out on the parenting and you're going to miss something because you have to meet with your agent. You're going to miss like, you know, publication day in the third grade or, you know, whatever. And, and sometimes, you know, you're not going to make a lunch. You're going to like give the kid a bought lunch by accident. You know, I'm <laughs> sorry. It's just an is, accident. Here's $4. Go buy yourself something. <laughs> from a cart, you know, <laughs> and sometimes you're going to maybe be a little bit late on your deadline, or maybe, you know, you won't get to go to like a four week colony. You can only go to a two week colony. Sure. So yes, there are trade-offs, there are balances, but I think you always in your entire life will be making trades and balances. And it's, it's, it shouldn't change what people think about the talent level. Right. About the dedication level. If anything, I think parent writers are more dedicated after they have kids. Because sure. if you continue your creative career after having a child, you better believe you love to write. You better believe that you are passionate about this thing, that you believe it's going to happen. You have so much faith that you're going to try to do 20, two 24-7 careers at the same time. All right, now let's, let's switch over to your work as a writer because <laughs> it's a perfect segue into okay. making sure we talk about your other work because okay. you've done a phenomenal job almost 10 years tell us about Thank your you. work. i have three 24 7 careers three three <laughs> tell us about your 24 7 career so let's see so my writing is uh it's still evolving uh i write i so after i had children i started writing all short stories all the time because i could manage that i could manage to finish a lot of very short fiction. I am a rather prolific writer. I like to write and I write I write pretty fast and I write very weird. My fiction is very, very weird. Um, yes. I like it. I, in fact, my writing group says like, oh, it's another Milda story. Like oh. it's like you're gonna be really weird. Okay. Um, in my writing, so I write under M.M. M. DeVoe, 
which I chose because I am a dinosaur and I did not know how upsetting it would be to computers. Oh. So MM DeVoe just sounded so cool and like it was going to be so great. Oh, it's too. a great Twitter handle, MM Yeah, it is. Follow it me, is. yay. But, um, but like on library shelves, apparently initials are the worst. Oh. So I don't, oh, I don't right. know how, but they can't organize them. They can't alphabetize them. And then for things like, my Facebook thing has dots, like my email has dots in it. And right. then it goes to spam because it has dots in it. Oh, but Milda, you want to be weird. That's your brand. Well, that's what there I you got. go. <laughs> so wait, let's go back for a second because yep. I love the way you, because I, I, prolific is one of my favorite words as a writer. Oh, a so, so how do you manage it? What's your writing like? I mean, how, how do so you So I, so right now, Pen Prentis is really taking a huge amount of my time because I just got a business mentor and I'm sort of, throwing myself into the deep end and I am so overwhelmed, but it's amazing. But I still force myself to like, like right now it's forcing myself, but normally I take an hour, I would say a day and just like, even when I'm busy, I just go, okay, that's it. This is writing time done. Everything turns off. Nice. And I write, I like, um, I don't, I have (laughs) after children, I have lost all, all like, pretends I, I don't have to do anything special. I just, I, <laughs> I just take a laptop anywhere and I start to write anything and okay. then I just work on that. So okay. a lot of times I've uh, recently, because I've been so busy, I've been, I work on things that I started and abandoned. Okay. So I'll go find an old file and be like, Oh, this is great. And then I'll like, go find it and like, see if I can make it work. Okay. So that, that functions as a kind of writing prompt for me yeah. because I have a lot of broken, not finished or terrible pieces that I have started and, uh-huh. and left undone. So where do you keep them? You, you're like, you have your, I have your, a folder of, your drafts, I think it's so. called, it's called something like source material or something. Okay. It's just sort of like, it's not finished. I don't know what to do with it. It's, but nice. I have like buckets. Of so like one hour a day things. for sure. You ever write more sure. than an hour a day? Yeah. Um, okay. well, and it, haha. So I've been married for a quarter of a century. I've been married for 20, 25 years. It's a wow. ridiculously awesomely long amount of time, but it also sort of nauseates me because it's like such a long time to be married. It's more than most humans, like most adults. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. But it works for us and we're very happy and that's good. Yeah. Um, but when he's home, I can't write. Like that's the one thing that I can't because I'm constantly wanting to chat with him or he wants to talk to me. And so it just doesn't like, Okay. Even when he's like, I'm going to go into the room. I'm like, yeah, but you're on a conference call. Like, oh, right, so, right. so I have to go elsewhere to do that. Okay. Um, and I forgot the question. Well, I got distracted by my cute husband. No, I love it. <laughs> it's a great thing. After 25 years, you are just good for long-term projects. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. No, I'm just meaning I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you do what you support, right? Which is yeah. making sure that you get the work done and how you do it. Cause you know, actually I'll admit like last night I was saying to myself, it's Monday and every week there's like a new tally. Like I'm going to try and work on my thing every day, even mm-hmm. if it's just a little, I, so last night I had the laptop on in bed and I was falling asleep, oh. but I was insisting on doing something. Yeah, I do something. that. I do that. I because do that it was when I'm like, falling asleep. Yes. Right. That's so, why I have so many unfinished things. Right. Because, so yeah. So it was a feeling like I, if I just do it, then I know I'm being, you I've know, done something. Right. Yeah. I'm dead. So because I struggle so much, I wanted to hear from the source. You are the yeah. wizard. <laughs> there, so, nice. um, how you pull it off. So I, yeah. So, so, so now you have to find a, a place. Like when my go. husband is not in the house, then I can, then I can really 
work because I will just be like, okay, you I'm like done. Like I will just suddenly take out, it'll be like, you know, 1030 and I'm like, okay, this is it. This is my time. I'm yeah. going and yeah. I will just go. And um, so you don't actually do outlines or spend a lot of time theorizing. You tend to. You're the pantser, no, right? That's what they call you. Pantser. Yeah, I'm a pantser. You're I'm a pantser. pantser. I write by That's the cool. seat of my pants and I like cool, weird pants. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I, I really like to write my way into a story and then edit it down. I actually have to acknowledge the fact that I have an amazing writing group and they are endlessly a source of kicking me in the pants so to speak they're cool. just they how often do they meet uh less often than they should because we are all now professionals mm-hmm. like we, when we started and i think i joined them probably 10 years ago another long-term project there yeah, you go right? so <laughs> i joined them they were already yeah. a group and yeah. and they were already like multiple award winning like they're just amazing and they write um most i think all of them at this point right Right, mostly genre fiction, which is really helpful to me. Who I was educated in literary fiction, and to get this like, oh, and by the way, it should have a story. And oh, <sighs> by the way, like these characters are all fine and good, but they don't do anything, Melba. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> so but the writing really is lovely. Yeah, but the right? writing is lovely. Right, yeah, exactly. Right, like their right. eyes glaze over from the beauty of the sentences. <laughs> kind of. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay okay i think that's cool My, now let's talk about your project the one that you've gotten all this beautiful artwork made for. i am very excited about the tell artwork. us about that so i have this novel and it was my columbia thesis project so it, i started it again a gazillion years ago i really yeah. started it early the boy who loved trees right the boy that's who loved okay. trees yes and it um it began as a you know as a, a novel, which was going to be very realistic historical fiction set in, you know, Soviet Lithuanian times. It was a gay coming of age story about a boy who does not come out because it's the 1980s. And I like that irony. I was so fascinated by all of the, at that time, all these politicians were coming out of the closet. They were all married. They all had kids. I'm like, who are you people? It was the eighties. Adam Ant. like, come on. Like what all of the, icons were these crazy androgynous everybody was sleeping with every it was this amazing like time of sexual freedom and and everybody was bisexual that you know everything was crazy it was awesome here and here in this country well in in this country but um but but those politicians were from this country I mean, they're from New Jersey, you know, like, (laughs) come on. And so like the, the fact that they couldn't come to terms with themselves, this was to me, this amazing thing. And I have a very, very old, dear, lovely, close friend who did not come out for 35 years. And we all were like, are you gay? We must've asked him like 600 times and we were totally fine with him being gay, but he just didn't and couldn't and wouldn't come out. And so you know, and he ended up dating one of my friends for 10 years, like kind of heterosexual. Go- no. Yeah. Oh, okay. well, they were, he was, they, they were in a relationship. I okay. don't know, but they were very, you know, it was probably very religion. Like don't have sex. That's uh, a very easy way to hide behind. Like, sure, sure. I don't have sex, you know? Yeah. So, but anyway, the point is not about him, but he was very fascinating to me. And so I think because of knowing him, I wanted to write about a, a boy who didn't come out and try to explore why somebody wouldn't come out, yeah. even though they might find their soulmate. Like, why wouldn't you 
embrace this, you know. And I imagine it will generalize to other things that people use uh, as reasons to hide their true selves, like uh, not just someone for whom the society is disapproving um, because it's uh, a heterosexual society, but someone for whom the society is disapproving because they like a certain like a certain hobby that everyone else thinks is weird or someone for whom society is disapproving because their background is doesn't match up with the background of everyone around. I mean, I imagine it would generalize to be something moving for people who are faced with this problem of being a, unable to reveal their truest self. That's true. Yeah, that's an interesting take on it. I absolutely... So I was I was interested in it from a, a sort of gay straight uh, perspective, um, mostly because of the iconography that was sort of surrounding it all, but also that um, that there are two influences that are very strong. Like in this particular boy's case, he is from a small town in Montana, and he is raised outside of like Lithuanian circle. So this is set in Lithuania because I'm Lithuanian, and so this whole thing is set on a two-week trip to the Soviet Union in which a whole bunch of kids from all over the world who have Lithuanian heritage are all invited by the Soviets to come and take a tour Hmm. of Soviet Lithuania. And then the Soviets are going to tell them how great Soviet Lithuania is. And they're going to all have all their inner parents going and society going, communism is terrible, you know, like blah, blah, blah. And And so there's that conflict in the kids where they've been taught one thing, they're being shown something really opposite. And so they're trying to come to terms with who they are. Are they Lithuanian? Does it mean that they're Soviet? Because certainly in America, if you're growing up and during the eighties and you tell somebody you're Lithuanian, they're like, Oh, you're Soviet. (laughs) No, my parents left because of the Soviet. Right. So there was all this constant, like, what does your identity mean and how does that layer? And so there was like this national identity that, crisis that these all of the kids are going through there's the personal crisis that the one main character is going through and then on top of that also there's a bit of music because he's an accordion player and in his home state that is super weird and (laughs) crazy but among these kids he's like the superstar rock star because everybody wants to sing they all want to hang out and sing you know it's like that hanging out and playing the guitar you know like he just plays the accordion and everybody hangs out. So he becomes like super popular because of this instrument that is, makes him. I love how rich I haven't even read the story and I love how rich it is already. I mean, it's lovely. I love the literary. It's wonderful. (laughs) And it's, it's, it was really fun to write. And so anyway, I I had written it and I had gotten, but now it's not short. I mean, you've written a lot of short stuff. So this this is a different, but it's uh, but it's like it's got a lot of episodes. But um, well, this has been cooking since the uh, Columbia yeah. dissertation. Yeah, yeah, and is... it's evolved a lot. Um, at, I gave myself permission. So uh, when it was a thesis, it was very much like a this is a two week trip. Here's what happens. You know, right. it's very realistic. And then um, so I had an agent, and she tried to sell it, and everybody told get this. An actual agent said in an actual letter, "I like your writing, but you should write something more American." 
That's I thought you were saying. saying more commercial. No, we're, we're American. American. I'm like, how could you know? What could there be immigrant anything? story? Like, yeah, <laughs> is the most American, American thing. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. So, so that you know, That's that was interesting. one interesting little thing. You're gonna get all kinds of feedback. I mean, yeah. I'm gonna let it. I mean, nothing's gonna stop you anyway. But oh, I don't know. It's, it's, so, it's yeah, a I don't thing. know what's gonna happen. But then, anyway, so then, then I, I gave myself. So that agent. Uh, she she ended up being becoming a huge agent and having some really big clients and we stopped talking to each other because she was busy with her clients that were very very busy you know okay. so so I kind of got put back and I finally said listen maybe we're maybe we're by you know she's on the other coast it was hard to call her anyway so I I, I left and um, maybe you weren't so well matched to put well, it I don't know nicely. no she was great she really liked my work and I think if she had been in New York we would have done better. Right. together because we could have talked but there was a lot of like i i couldn't well actually because i had little tiny children that didn't i happen. had a very sure. different schedule than a california schedule like i sure. couldn't talk to her at 11 at night i was asleep or right. breastfeeding or something like i right. it was too hard and yeah. um and she couldn't get up at you know whatever morning when i did so it was just it was mostly timing i think and and just distance but anyway i liked her but the um point is that after i left her i I gave it a break. I put it down. I wrote a bunch of other stuff. And then I, and I won, I, I won a lot of awards for short fiction, by the way. It's great. Kind of, yeah. I have like great. two dozen. Wow. Like, it's kind of crazy. Wow. <laughs> People bit, like weird, weird. Let's get some weird writing done, well, Diane. <laughs> I have to say, but, but I, have to, I have to say that because those awards and anybody who gives out awards, I just want to thank you because those <laughs> awards are what keep me, they, they are what keep me going. Well, I'm actually not a bad writer. Like yeah, I can yeah, actually yeah, yeah. look at my list sure. of awards and go, okay. So and I think we all I'm, need I'm validation, which is a whole other point that we didn't really touch on. But I think parent right. writers, yeah, we they can use maybe even more than, maybe. than what we'd get, you know. Yeah. Do, you know to, do you want to mention a few of them? Well, I, no. No, <laughs> no, no we don't want to go that far. But, but, the, but, but tell, tell us about the illustrations a little bit. Because okay. they're so gorgeous. They're, oh, so they're so beautiful. Is, you're right. So and they'll be in the show notes, everyone. So you can come I'm so excited you get to see them. So the... The major change that I made, I said, you know, I, I had to write like me, like, I don't need to write. I, I had been writing this to try to sell it to an American audience or to an audience or any, or any, any, any reader, <laughs> anybody who would buy a book. But I thought, okay, if I don't have to sell it, if I just write the way that I want to write it, well, this is what I would do. And it's already got, it already had six parts or five parts. It was in five parts. And I thought I would want to read like something in between. I would want to read interesting, weird little folktales. I love Lithuanian folktales. So I had, I wrote five Lithuanian folktales. And then the last story in the book, the very ending of the book is an actual fable that I wrote myself that is an explanation. It is why it's the boy who loved trees. And it is why those men were unable to come out or didn't come out. That's so and great. it's like how they managed it. And That's it's so a folk t- it is literally written like a folktale. Like there was a boy and he lived in the forest. And That's it's fantastic. Really cool. And I will not read that one because that one, I will not no, reveal no, that, that fabulous folktale. Sure. But then I got, so then I thought, okay, well, it's my book. And if I want to do it my way, I like pictures in books. I happen to love illustrated manuscripts so much. And so I went and got, um, I, I, I had a connection to an illustrator in Lithuania and her, her name is Edita Suchotskite, which is kind of a hard to say name, but a very 
important one. Um, she's a beautiful illustrator and she has done a few like children's books, but she's known as sort of a pen and ink uh, artist. And she did a tour of the United States recently of like all Lithuanian embassies and stuff. And I got her to do illustrations for my How book. How did you meet her? I met her through a mutual acquaintance. Great. So yeah. Great. So these people that, that had that had stayed with me. Well, well, Diane and I got to see a preview. You all can see the uh, show notes. It's just beautiful work. It's and so cool. I'm sure the writing is going to be amazing. They're so, so fairy tale The two things together. All right. Well, um, we're almost out of time on the interview, but we'd like to leave it so that you can um, tell our listeners. Our listeners are both readers and writers, and we like to give them from our guests any um, tips, ideas, any motivation, anything that you would say. And, and for this episode, I guess we're really talking to either parent writers or to anyone who feels like they have something that kind of um, takes your attention. I want people to, I want people to give themselves permission to be creative. Like I want people to stop thinking about, will it sell? Stop thinking about like anything except your imagination, like let yourself imagine it. Don't be a lot of, I find that like, so I I also sometimes teach writing one-on-one and a lot of times I get this feedback, like, well, that's not how it happened, you know, and they're writing a fiction story and they're like, well, that's not how, it's not what happened. Like, no, you imagine what happened and what happened is what you write down. That's what happens. And then it has to feel true. It doesn't have to actually have happened in the real world. And your what you create on the page is real. I mean, you look at these characters, like Harry Potter is a real character. Mm-hmm. There is no question that that is a real, sure. if that person walked over, every single human being on the planet would be like, that's Harry Potter. You <laughs> right, know, like right. they would know. And, sure. and J.K. Rowling's been, living, Rowling's been living with him for yeah. so long. And, and she made <laughs> him up out of her head. Yes. And so I want to give everybody in listener land permission to make things up out of their heads until they are real. Yeah. Like until they are real, you make it up and then there it is. And then you made that and you made that. And I felt that way when I saw the art because I wrote that story and now the art is real and you can like touch it. Well, right. I can, you can't, <laughs> you can look at we it. We can just screen. look at it. <laughs> you can zoom in on it. Yes. But, yes. Um, but it's so I think that's cool a great, that, I think like, that's a great thing. Yeah. And now it's a real thing in the real world. Sure. It's sure. awesome. I love that. I love that. So we'll, we'll stop there. And what we'll do next then is thank you so much for joining us. Let, let people know where we can f- know more about you. And when your book, when do you think your book will be out, by the way? I'm or not more or less? sure. Maybe I want to say six to nine months, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but, but people will know about your books. What did you want to yeah, say? Right. Today? But I'm sure you have, have an author's yeah. website that yeah. you can direct people to. Everyone. And that will always have the latest announcements. That's right. MMDevoe.com. MMDevoe.com. No MMDevoe.com. And anyone who's interested in Pen Parentis, it's P-E-N-P-A-R-E-N-T-I-S.com. Dot org. I was just going to check dot myself. Org. Sorry. Dot org. <laughs> dot org. Yep. Okay. And, so, there is and I am on Twitter. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm on Twitter at MM DeVoe and I okay. do my own tweets and they're ridiculous. They're like, they're <laughs> I've been missing them. I have to get on Twitter more. Oh, so okay. And <laughs> all right. So then anything else, Diane? We're good. Okay. So then what we want to do now is move on to our on the hook segment. And on the hook is when we like to read aloud. Um, and since you're here with us, we'd like to invite you to read some of your work for our listeners. So as soon as you're ready, we'll give you the mic. 
Okay, so this is, um, these are three of the Lithuanian folktales that separate the parts of the book. Part one. Once there was a lazy farmer who wished that he could rid himself of hunger so he wouldn't have to work. A white bearded stranger came along, removed the farmer's stomach and hung it on a high tree branch. The farmer grew idle and bored and every day he was forced to watch as his two farmhands lustily ate the glistening meats that his wife had roasted for his dinner. After three months of this, the farmer grew so miserable that he returned to his tree. The old stranger saw that the farmer had learned his lesson. Hunger led to the subsequent pleasure of eating, and therefore hard work was desirable. But it was too late. The stomach had shriveled into a useless white prune. The old man shrugged, and went on his way, leaving the farmer to curse his foolishness. <laughs> you should see the faces of these people. <laughs> Did I tell you Lithuanian folktales are super depressing and weird? I love it. Continue. Part two. Once there was a beautiful girl whose seven older brothers mysteriously vanished. Certain that the nine-headed serpent had devoured them, she went to its domain, climbed the highest pine tree, and called to the huge monster to end her life as well. The nine-headed serpent heard her lament and approached the tree gleefully. I will slaughter you, its nine voices screeched. My teeth will tear you to pieces smaller than flaxseed. She felt the branches shake as it started to climb and said her prayers and readied herself to die. Suddenly, seven black swans encircled her, lifted her from the tree, and took her over the mountains to a distant cave. We are your brothers, the oldest swan announced when it landed, but we have been cursed to remain in this form forever. She cooked and cleaned for them for several years, but she began to miss real people and to crave a child of her own. One night, she stole a feather from the oldest swan to allow her to fly away. The seven brothers vowed to find her. It took them a year to track her down, and when they did, they killed her for her betrayal, along with her husband and the newborn babe. <laughs> Part three. Are you ready? <laughs> Don't you want to read my novel? <laughs> yes. Part three. This is the last one I'm reading, so get ready. Here we go. Once there was a man whose wife died young. Since the man had a big farm and three small children, he sought to remarry. At the market, a girl he did not know, a maiden with hair like the sun, approached him and told him she had heard of his needs and would like to become his bride. He accepted the beautiful stranger's offer without another thought, and their nuptial feast was unparalleled in the land. Other men warned the farmer that his new bride might be Aragana, a beautiful witch who was hideous in her soul and wildly jealous. But the man did not believe his friends. Every night, he kissed his family in order, first his oldest daughter, then his son, then his youngest daughter, and finally his lovely wife. Every night, he told them that the farm was profitable, his family was beautiful, and everything in his life was perfect. Then times grew hard. 
The man still kissed his family every night, but now he told them the farm was not profitable and that their beauty could be enhanced by work. Nothing helped. The fields did not produce. Finally, one morning, the man told his wife to kill their last cow so that they would have enough to feed the children. That night, when the farmer returned home, he found her stirring a marvelous stew. The scent was exotic, the fat thick and yellow on the surface of the cauldron. His wife, lovelier than ever, greeted him as she stoked the fire. One skinny old cow made so much meat, the man said happily, sipping the thick broth from a wooden spoon. Well, actually, I require the cow's milk for my baths, the Ragana laughed, and she reached for one of the three large lumps of meat in the center of the cauldron. The child's boiled leg came free of its joint with the ease of a small weed being pulled from freshly watered soil. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.